This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, everyone. Um, welcome to BIEB 152. This is a lecture number two. Um, so for this lecture, I just wanted to step back and answer 10 questions that I think many of us are thinking about uh, with COVID-19. Um, these questions are not all of the questions that we have, obviously, and there's lots of resources online if you do have questions about this ongoing pandemic. But they're the questions that I thought really in answering them, we get to more of the fundamentals of the biology of the disease so that um, you guys can learn about you know, how this coronavirus works and, and begin to have an intuition for how microbes might evolve. Okay, so each lecture, I want to start by taking the temperature of the epidemic. So this is where I go over a few slides, uh, updating you on how it's proceeding, whether or not our interventions are working, whether or not um, there's hopeful news or maybe bad news. Um, and so we'll do that, and then we'll move on to the actual course content. This is an update of the data that I showed you last time. I wasn't going to show this because it's just going to look more of the same um, you know, this phylogeny here, this evolutionary relationship of SARS-CoV-2 um, is going to probably remain very robust. There's so much data that's put into this phylogeny that I don't, I don't anticipate that the patterns will change much. And certainly the patterns to the right of the spread of the disease around the world, um, you know, it's spread, it's everywhere. Now it's, it's sort of um, mounting and uh, endemic infections in, in each of the countries. But I did want to go back to this data because I got an email asking about this, uh, this idea that UCSD, it appears, hasn't been hit as hard as other places. And people are wondering that they had a really bad cold in the fall. And was that actually some sort of uh, precursor to the current strain of SARS? And did that give them immunity? to SARS-CoV-2. And I want to say that I, I, I don't believe in that, that theory um, and that it, it is hopeful that this idea that maybe somehow in San Diego we were pre-exposed to this pathogen and, and we've developed immunity. Um, and why I'm worried about that kind of thinking spreading is it's good to be hopeful, but not so hopeful that we begin to influence our own behaviors and stop doing things like social distancing. And so the reason why I don't think that that theory holds is this data here. And so if you see on this um, x-axis here, these are dates in which certain strains were isolated um, and sequenced, and then they're using um, evolutionary biology and phylogenetic reconstruction to be able to predict um, when the strain probably emerged from bats to humans. And it certainly emerged, or all of the data suggests, that emerged in early December, and that was in Wuhan, so it was con confined to a you know, region of the world, and then from there it spread out. Uh, and we have so much data now that suggests that, that I just don't think that's, that's actually gonna change. There's also you know, a lot of theories about, was this in Italy first? No, the data does not suggest that. Other theories are that this was a lab strain, um, the data we'll look at later uh, in this lecture and later in the course suggests that this is certainly not a lab strain, um, that this looks like a natural variant that's very similar to variants that we've seen in bats and sampled, you know, a couple years ago. So it's not a lab strain. It, it, it emerged in Wuhan and spread around the world after that. 
So this is more about checking the temperature of what's going on. This is a plot that I showed you last time, and I, I had fit this, uh, this little curve here optimistically, hoping, hoping that we were no longer in the exponential increase uh, phase of spread within the United States. But when we look at the, the data from yes, uh, two days ago and from today, uh, we find that you know, my, my fit to the curve was overly optimistic. The rate of increase of the spread within the United States is still increasing. It does appear to be slowing down, but of course, just a few data points don't really make a trend. Um, we have to see more, more data and see how this unfolds. Uh, certainly the CDC uh, is predicting that in the next couple of weeks uh, nationwide, that's when it's gonna be the worst for the United States. But remember, we are states and we all have different behaviors in each state, um, in different economies and different cultures. And so um, in different times in which we got the disease. And so it's probably a state by state basis in which you're gonna see this sort of peak um, and then hopefully dropping back down. It looks like that is what happened already in Washington. Uh, I would say that New York is probably at the peak stage now and will be uh, dropping. And then in the, in the future, it'll sort of cycle through other states as well. Uh, so remember to, to remain social distancing. It's the best um, thing that we can do right now. Okay, and I showed you this confusing plot last time and I wasn't gonna show it again because you know these lines are all over the place. That y-axis is complicated. That y-axis, I will explain the math behind it in three lectures when we talk about natural selection and I go over exponential growth. For now, just know that higher values are bad, lower values are good, and that if you have a flat line in this graph, that means that you're still in exponential expansion of the disease. Um, and so what's kind of good news for the world is that in all of these different countries, the trajectory is downwards rather than flat. And that means that they're leaving the exponential expansion phase of the disease and it's hopefully grinding, to, grinding down um, and won't be as big of a problem in the near future. Uh, but the U.S., you can see, is, is kind of all over the place. Um, this is because we're a giant country and there's probably different kinds of dynamics happening within each state. And so it's hard to just look at this sort of combined data. But it also reminds us we're barely deviating at all from exponential growth. And so it reminds us that we have to remain uh, vigilant on social distancing and other practices. The CDC is contemplating using masks, face masks now for the general public as a precaution and as a, a way to limit the spread. And I would say don't use masks that are the ones that should be used in the hospital. We should give them to the, the people in the hospital. Um, but there are lots of ways to uh, make your own mask at home that are relatively effective. And so I, I do suggest doing that. I haven't actually worn a mask outside yet, but I think we should sort of break the, break the, um, the kind of social barrier and accepted acceptability of wearing masks in the United States and, and, and maybe start doing that. Okay, and this is data that I uh, showed last time, but this is an update on it. And what we can see here is that this is the temperature da data uh, from the smart um, uh, thermometers that are spread throughout the United States uh, by Kinza Healthcare. Um, and here are some plots and they just show that COVID-19 was causing these atypical patterns. And now that once we started social distancing, now we've actually dropped below what they expected would be the normal level of 
sick people based on temperature across the United States. So social distancing is having a real effect. This is the data that shows it. Um, and so we just need to keep on social distancing. So let's keep moving forward. You know, the other data I showed is kind of bad data. It seems that we're still in the exponential expansion phase in the United States, um, in most of the states. So I wanted to share some good information. And this is a little bit old uh, compared to a lot of the information that I've been sharing. Um, but basically, the NIH has started a clinical trial uh, of a COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, all over the world, people are coming together to develop these vaccines. There's trials either starting or have started in other countries in the world. Um, but this is very promising, and hopefully we can have a vaccine and, and just sort of forget about uh, SARS-CoV-2. I have this picture here. That's just a, a model of the, the virus itself. And then it has these red protrusions, and that's this structure, this protein here are those red protrusions. That's the S protein. That's the host recognition protein. And this is highlighted because this is likely the feature that they're using to put in the vaccine to elicit immunological response uh, from our own bodies to become immune from this, this viral particle. The vaccine is being carried out by uh, this collaborative effort, which is amazing. I, I can't even imagine putting all of these pieces together, uh, but you have Kaiser Healthcare, they have hospitals in all over the West Coast especially, but um, in Washington, uh, where they're doing this clinical trial, you have the NIH um, through one of their, the NIAID, um, funding the science and also scientists that are associated with them doing the research. Uh, you have Modera, which is a uh, company in Massachusetts and Cambridge, um, and they're, they're helping the development with their scientists. And then you have this um, Coalition for Epidemic uh, Preparedness Innovations in Norway, that's actually manufacturing some of the, the vaccine. Um, so it is, it's this collaborative effort. But I have to say that it's more than just um, this one group and this one collaboration. In the New York Times, just yesterday, they're pointing out that scientists are working together across the world, whether they're in the public sector, like I am, or in the private sector, they're working together, sharing data, and it's just, it's a great thing. There was news that Trump tried to get a company from Germany to move over here so that we would have the rights, I guess, to the, to the vaccine, or maybe not the rights, but control over the vaccine. And China also proposed the same, a similar kind of deal with another company in, in Germany. Um, and so it seems that our politicians are sort of going to fight over this vaccine, but at least the, the scientists are not engaged in that. So hopefully there'll be enough for everybody and, and we'll get over this soon. What's the timeline for vaccine testing? At least a year. So it's going to take a long time. We have to continue social distancing and, and other practices. Okay, so let's uh, actually get into the, the lecture. Uh, so 10 questions answered about coronavirus. And like I said, I picked these questions out because I think they help inform about the biology of the, the coronavirus. This is going to be focused on the large group of viruses that are called the corona, are called coronaviruses, um, but we will also talk about uh, SARS-CoV-2, the strain that's causing COVID-19. Okay, what is a coronavirus? And so if you are listening to the recording of this um, and you have the option to actually pause, I would actually say that after I pose a question, 
hit pause and think to yourself, you know, have your brain sort of sort through, you know, what do you really know about a coronavirus and, and how would you personally define it? Then once you have that in mind, um, then hit play. And what that's doing is it's helping you, you know, stay focused and engaged in a lecture. Um, but it also, it's, it's opening your brain up to make all these connections to pathways that are, you know, connected to coronavirus. And I'm hoping I don't, I'm not a neurobiologist. I study viruses, which certainly don't have neurons, but I'm hoping, hoping that, you know, having that thought process ahead of time will sort of help cement these, these details down. And so this is something I would do throughout the entire course. Okay, so let's move forward. What is a coronavirus? And so this is an uh, electron micrograph of multiple particles of the coronavirus. Um, you can see that they have all of these sort of spikes. Um, they're called a coronavirus because they have these um, these spikes that make them look like they have a crown. A corona is a crown. And uh, a coronavirus is in the family uh, coronaviridae, and it is a group four positive strand RNA virus. Uh, so uh, this is this is just sort of basic virology information. And if you if you know what those things are, great. If you don't, don't worry too much about it. I will explain what a positive strand RNA virus is in a second. As an evolutionary biologist, what I find really compelling about this virus is that it's been co-evolving with bats. Uh, and it's for a very long time, it's actually estimated for maybe 55 million years. Um, and so this is a very, it's a large group of viruses. It's had plenty of time to evolve and diversify into different strains. It's mostly in bats, although it, it does now, it has spread to other species and is coexisting with other species like humans as well. Um, so I just think it's very fascinating that it has such a long history and has had such time to evolve and adapt in, in very interesting ways that we'll learn about. So what are the building blocks of the coronavirus? So pause if you, if you uh, want to. Uh, for you guys listening live, we're just going to dive into the, the answer. Okay, so this is what a coronavirus looks like. Um, uh, it has relatively few components, I guess relatively to, compared to a cell, but to a virus, this is about, about normal. It has these uh, spike uh, glycoproteins, the S. These are the things that make it the coronavirus. These are the things that interact with the outer membrane of our cells. People really focus on these a lot. Uh, a lot of research that we'll talk about on the S protein. Um, the M protein is also in this outer membrane. That's the envelope. Um, you have this HE uh, protein also there. You have the envelope. Um, and so an important part of this is um, you have the RNA that's inside. There's an N protein that, that interacts with the RNA to, to make sure that it's uh, compressed and condensed into this structure so it fits inside the, um, the particle. Uh, you have this other E protein on the outer membrane. So the gist is a bunch of structural proteins. You have the membrane, that's the envelope. Uh, then you have the, the genetic information in the center. That's the, that's the instructions for it to be able to take over the cell and replicate more viruses, viral particles um, and, and spread to more people. Uh, it's 120 nanometers, which is I don't know, kind of big for uh, uh, some viruses, but not certainly not the biggest virus out there. Uh, it's very tiny, though, in the, in the scheme of things. You know, lots of them can fit onto the head of a, a needle. I don't know exactly how many, but it's very, very small. 
Okay. What are some characteristics of a coronavirus genome? So the coronavirus genome is actually relatively big for RNA viruses. Um, and so I'm showing you a schematic of two different coronavirus genomes. We have the SARS-CoV and the MERS-CoV. We'll talk in a second about the diversity of different coronaviruses um, and talk a little bit more about the characteristics of these two different uh, viruses. But just remember that SARS-CoV is not the SARS-CoV-2, although their genomes are very, very similar to each other. Um, and SARS-CoV caused an epidemic a while ago, MERS-CoV more recently, and is an ongoing epidemic. Um, but these are two, two of these uh, coronaviruses that cause these really bad epidemics. And uh, they're, they're also very highly deadly, even more deadly than SARS-CoV-2. Okay, and so, you know, these are just like a bunch of blocks, like what am I looking at here? What information am I gaining from this? Um, basically, what I, the take-home message for this is it's a relatively large genome. There's multiple genes. Um, it's organized in an interesting way. And so this Open Reading Frame 1A and Open Reading Frame 1B, that's what ORF is, Open Reading Frame. These are actually not just um, two proteins, but they're 16 proteins um, that uh, get, uh, get cut up by uh, enzymes that, that turn this long sequence into, into smaller proteins. Um, and so all of these proteins at this side of the genome, since they're on this side of the genome, they're read first um, and turned into proteins first. And so these are the proteins that are used for DNA replication um, and some other, some other functions, but mostly DNA replication because, ba or not, I'm, I'm sorry, I said DNA, RNA. This is an RNA virus, and it never has a DNA phase. We'll talk about that in a second. So replicating RNA. And what's interesting is, you know, it needs to replicate a lot of RNA. The RNA is then used to make the other, you know, other um, proteins down here. The RNA itself is the genetic material. So RNA has to be packaged within each of those viral particles. And so that's obviously a really important function. You have to you have to start that up immediately when you when you begin to infect the cell, and so that's what it does. Um, and then it has a bunch of these other structural proteins um, in the genome. This actually diagram is not to scale. This is the first two thirds of the genome, and we'll have another diagram later that shows that is to scale. Uh, and then this takes up just one third of the genome. So most of the information is about you know getting this this running start and replicating your RNA. Uh, viruses spread very quickly, and that's part of their, their adaptation. Okay, so genome replication, it is a single-stranded RNA. Um, when it gets into the cell, we'll go over this again with a better picture, it creates a, a negative strand, a mirror copy of a single-stranded RNA, and then that template is used to then make um, new versions of the gen genomic RNA, right? That makes sense. This is what you need to package, so you make its mirror image, and then you use that mirror image to reverse back, so a double mirror image gets you back to the, the positive sense single-stranded RNA. Okay, so the next thing that really interests me about, um, about these viruses, um, okay, so somebody is 
asking me to refresh what a positive strand RNA is. Um, and so basically, this is a, you think of DNA as being uh, a double-stranded uh, molecule where you have um, two sets of code that directly mirror each other um, side by side connected to each other. RNA is sim sim usually single-stranded. And so this is just one strand of RNA. And so it has the code, but it's just, it's not, the nucleotides are not connected together with other nucleotides. They're not pairing. And uh, what positive sense strand means is this is the direction in which the cell should read the RNA to properly produce proteins. And so it's in the, it's in the form right now where it wants to be read like this. And so when it replicates itself, it needs to repl replicate more of those uh, forms, but it has to go through this intermediate phase where it makes a mirror image of itself. So then, then the replication machinery can make a mirror image of that mirror image, which then um, produces another, a new positive strand, single-stranded RNA. Uh, so I hope that that helps. So getting back to um, what something I'm a little bit more interested in than just uh, kind of the, the molecular biology of viruses is their mutation rates. Uh, this is what this is the first step in the evolutionary process, and so understanding you know what the mutation rate is helps us get an insight into the potential for this virus to actually evolve. There's actually kind of good and bad news. This is this is a theme so far in this these lectures. Um, so RNA viruses in general have very high mutation rates compared to DNA-based viruses or DNA organisms. So they have a lot of potential to mutate and change and evolve. Um, but it turns out that this RNA virus has the lowest mutation rate of the RNA viruses known. And uh, the hypothesis for why it has such a low mutation rate is that it has a very large genome for the, the foreign RNA virus. Um, and if you have a high mutation rate in a large genome, then you have a lot of potential for errors to accumulate. And you don't want errors in your genome. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're adaptive, but most of the time they're bad. And so it appears that the coronavirus has actually evolved a polymerase that has a subunit on it that helps proofread. So as this is, as this is replicating here, it is also looking at the code and it has a mechanism to see, oh, shoot, I've accidentally incorporated the wrong um, uh, nucleotide and I'm going to change that and make sure that it's, it's, uh, it's not uh, in there, that mutation hasn't happened. Of course, no molecular machinery is perfect, and certainly not when you're replicating RNA, um, but it, it is better than the rest of the RNA viruses. So it should, it should evolve more slowly, a lot more slowly than influenza and HIV, um, but it still has a relatively high mutation rate, lots of errors per replication. And the next lecture is on mutation rate, so we'll get into the implications of that in there. Okay, so that's, that's sort of a, uh, what I want to go over on the, the genome of, of this virus and how it's structured and its adaptations. So the next question is, well, how does this coronavirus replicate? So it is amazing. Um, and I have to tell you that, you know, when I look at a figure like this, my brain just sort of shuts down. There's so much stuff going on. Uh, I'm more comfortable with 
mathematics and equations than I am with these drawings, with all of these little cartoons and, and so forth. But I want to just walk you through it because it is really amazing how these things actually work. Um, and so what we have here is we have the, um, the virus. Um, these, these large uh, appendages are the S uh, protein. And so the S protein is grabbing onto for humans um, and for coronavirus, um, or I'm sorry, SARS-CoV-2, um, that is going to be grabbing onto this protein called ACE2. That's what we call a receptor. Um, and so it's grabbing onto there. Um, you can see that there's other components of the virus that are also connecting to the outer membrane. Um, so often viruses will have receptors and then co-receptors. And so those are other proteins in the virus that are, co that are interacting with these co-receptors that are on the outer membrane of the, the host cell. Once the, those are initial, I should say that the co-receptors are, um, are there, there's none known so far for SARS-CoV-2, uh, but they might exist. Uh, but certainly ACE2 is the main receptor. Once you know, the, the vir viral particle begins to interact with the outer membrane, it then triggers it to uh, come into the cell and initiate the infection process. Uh, there's a couple different hypotheses for how that's triggered, and there's not great evidence that I know of yet of which, uh, which mechanism it actually uses. Um, so that's what that is saying. Um, and then once you get inside the cell, the first thing you do is the RNA goes to the ribosome in the cell and then begins to replicate that RNA. And then by doing that, uh, you can then get further copies of RNA that other ribosomes um, can replicate. And then also you can begin to produce, uh, I'm sorry, ribosomes are, rep are producing the, the proteins um, and uh, polymerases are are being produced and then they're replicating the, the RNAs. Um, and then, so from there you just have, you, the cell is really stressed out at this point and it's making a ton of new RNAs, and it's making a ton of new proteins. Um, and so that's what, that's what the figure is showing now. Um, so this is number three, is the polymerase is producing all of these uh, proteins. I mean, sorry, polymerase is producing the minus strand. You can tell molecular biology is not my, it's not my field. Um, and then uh, the ribosomes are producing the, the proteins. Um, and then um, the uh, minus strand is also producing, like I said before, it's producing new strands of the full length of the, of the genome. So it's producing small ones for protein um, replication or production and then it's producing um, these larger strands um, of the genome. These things are interacting with this N protein, which is encoded by the virus. And what they do is they just take this mess of a molecule and package it up nicely, and they bring it over um, to the endoplasmic reticulum. Um, and uh, this is sort of a, a membrane structure in the cell, if you don't remember. And What's happening at the endoplasmic reticulum is that there is also this little factory producing um, proteins and putting them into this membrane. Um, and then um, the RNA is coming together with, um, um, with the, 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 the membrane that has these structural proteins in it. 
and it's making new viral particles. So that envelope that we talked about before is actually being donated by the host. Um, and then the, uh, the Golgi uh, bodies actually move this. So that's the last step. Uh, the the Golgi, Golgi vesicles actually move the viral particle um, outside of the cell. And now the viral particle is free to spread uh, and to move to um, uh, uh, new, new cells within your own body or you know, leave your body and, and spread to, um, to new people. Uh, so people are asking about, you know, a lot about uh, the details of the, the, the pathway. Um, and so one question is what governs the RNA polymerase um, to either make full-length genome or a shorter um, uh, fragment that, that is used then to uh, make uh, proteins? I actually don't know the answer to that question. Um, I'm sure I, I, I can look that up and, and go to the discussion board later. Um, so yeah, so how, I, I think in general, the, the thing that, that makes me uh, amazed by this whole process is that there must be incredible synchronization um, between all of these different processes to come together and rapidly make these new viral particles. And that synchronization, you know, evolved over time and it's incredible. Um, and so there's a lot of research into, you know, gene expression in general and also viral gene expression and how these, these steps are, are synchronized with each other. Um, but I, I, I'm certainly not an expert in that. Thank you for the question. Okay, so let's move on to the next question. Does the coronavirus, so now that we know um, how the coronavirus replicates, are there any... Um, uh, steps in that process that leave the virus vulnerable to maybe drugs that we could make or some other way that we could intervene. Um, and uh, luckily for us, there are some steps that we think we have medications that might be able to intervene um, in, their, in the replication, stop them from replicating, cure people faster, and stop the spread of the pathogen from one uh, patient to the next patient. Um, and so, uh, there are three different classes of these. Um, a lot, oftentimes, there's multiple different compounds within the class or multiple different strategies of, of interfering uh, within that step in the process. Um, and so I guess I want to say before we get into the medications that you could think of, you know, the, um, uh, the virus's ability to spread or lack of ability to spread because, as we talked about, it's, a, it's an envelope virus that eventually will die. Um, and uh, if, it's, if it's just out in the environment, so we can think of that as a vulnerability that we're interfering with right now um, through uh, these, through social distancing or masks or cleaning our, you know, washing our hands and so forth. Um, okay, so that's at the sort of end of the life cycle of the virus that we're currently interfering with its ability to transmit. Um, but you know, there's steps early in the process um, that we can interfere with too. Um, and so one of them is uh, we can produce monoclonal antibodies or uh, convalescent plasmid. Okay, so let me explain what those are um, in a second. What they do is they actually attack the proteins, these, uh, the things that make the coronavirus have a corona, um, these S proteins, we can have them attack uh, these and knock them out 
so that they can't, um, the virus can't bind to ACE2 and it can't get in, inside of the cell. So um, monoclonal antibodies are basically using uh, immune systems cr to create uh, these, these molecules that can attack, um, attack the, uh, the virus like I talked about. And this plasma, I mean, as far as I understand, what that is is you are taking plasma blood from um, somebody who has already survived an infection and is healed, and so they will have antibodies in their in their and they'll have an immune response um, that's in their in their blood that hopefully you you can take that and transfer it to another patient, and this is usually not the best way of going about. Uh, treating somebody, but it can if you have a really severe infection. Um, uh, it, it looks like there's some promising results so far that it can help out. Um, so that's that's an interesting idea. It feels pretty like middle ages to me, um, but you know if it works, uh, we have to use the tools that work right now. The other uh, idea is that there's also these um, compounds. Uh, these compounds were in the news. Um, because somebody took the wrong compound in a high dosage that thought it was this one in order to uh, act as a repellent um, to this virus, and uh, they ended up dying. Um, so definitely only ever use drugs that doctors prescribe to you, but you can also interfere with, um, uh, with this step of uh, endocytosis using these, um, these compounds. So we're waiting at least a year for a vaccine. Um, and but hopefully the development of these um, uh, products will come out much faster. Um, they tend to not have as many side effects as a vaccine, which is actually you know interacting with your immune system to mount a response. Um, the thing that I talked about in the first lecture, where I was in the hospital for a month and blind and couldn't breathe for ten days, um, that was caused by an autoimmune response, and so for vaccines, they can inspire those types of autoimmune responses and have obviously even worse side effects um, than having the, the uh, COVID-19. Uh, so we need to make sure that they, they, the vaccine is safe. These things tend to have, are, are acting more directly on the virus um, and there isn't an intermediate of, you know, co-opting something from your own body. And so hopefully won't have as many potential bad side effects and production can go a lot faster. Um, and so I'm hopeful that, that some of these, these will work. These, some of these ideas were in production uh, for MERS and SARS well before we had SARS-CoV-2. So hopefully they work. And I do know that uh, there are companies, even within San Diego, that are working on these multiclonal antibodies. And so one thing before we move on that I wanted to point out is that I am really encouraged that we're not just going down one avenue, but multiple avenues. Of course, that that's beneficial to hedge your bets so that one of them works. Um, but it's also beneficial in that hopefully actually a couple of these things go online online simultaneously. And the reason why I say that, and this is from experience with HIV, and it also plays out uh, given the math and how evolutionary processes work, that if you only have one drug, and if that one drug the virus can mutate with maybe one single mutation to be resistant to that drug, then the first time you use that drug, you are going to uh, select for resistant variants. And it's possible that if that resistant variant escapes, 
um, you could then have a spread of a resistant virus. And so all of that therapeutic that we just worked all this time on creating is now no longer functional and no longer cures people. And so um, that's a huge problem. And one of the ways that we'll learn about to sidestep that problem is to do like a one-two punch where you're hitting the virus in two of its weak points. And in order for it to evolve resistance, it would have to evolve resistance maybe in two different proteins. And that's just much, much harder for viruses to do or any organism to do. Um, and so it'd be great if we could start out first thing with a combination therapy. Okay, so moving on to the next question. I have a, a question here. Um, based on how coronavirus is replicated, this virus doesn't kill the host cell. Is death due to the human immune response? Okay, that's a great question, and I, I did mean to go over that, so thank you for reminding me. So you're right, and this was based on the last slide, uh, so I'm sorry that I let you waiting so long. So yeah, so the cells don't actually die immediately from the production of the virus. So some viruses actually have enzymes that cause the cells to burst and that kills off the cells. And then if you have enough of those cells being killed off by the virus, then that's a direct threat on your, on your body. And um, that, that's what causes morbidity or, and mortality. Um, but uh, what's happening here is that uh, the cells can just, they, they become just factories for these viruses. The thing is, though, is that they are producing so much protein and so much RNA at such a rapid rate that um, you begin to get proteins misfolding and junking up the cell. Um, I'm not sure exactly what's going on with the RNA, but certainly the proteins misfold and cause problems for the cell. Um, and so eventually the cell just dies itself um, because it just it can't keep up with that level of production and it has all this junk floating around. Um, so the cell, cells do die as a direct res, uh, result of the viral replication, although that isn't programmed into the viral gen genome that it actually directly kills the cell. It's just a consequence of reproducing so quickly. Um, so that helps cause morbidity and mortality, but certainly this question of the immune system uh, is, is relevant and whether or not our own bodies are hurting ourselves and certainly it seems that with coronavirus and other viruses that a lot of the mortality is not caused directly by viral reproduction, but is your immune system uh, reacting to the virus and reacting in such a, 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 to such an extent that it, it ends up killing off too many of your own cells um, and, and causing uh, inflammation and causing problems. Uh, so I'm definitely not an immunologist, um, but, um, but that is, that's sort of what I understand. And um, I guess I should say that uh, um, the way, so a, p a missing piece from that is that one of the actions of the immune system is to actually um, trigger cell death of cells that are infected. And so the idea there is that if you have these cells that are factories for the virus and you want to kill off the virus, well, if the cell is just spewing out tons and tons of virus, then you know, your, your countermeasures are just going to be swamped out by the production of new viruses. And so the immune system triggers uh, cells to die and uh, that, that stops the virus from, from replicating. But if too many of the cells are triggered to die, obviously that begins to cause tissue damage, inflammation, and so forth. I hope that helps you understand why this thing is, is so deadly. And remember, the cells that are being infected, and we haven't gone over this yet, so uh, I shouldn't have said remember, um, but the cells that are 
um, being infected are respiratory cells. These are cells in your lungs, and so you obviously need those and can't have um, too many um, being knocked out. Okay, um, what species do coronaviruses infect? Okay, so this is just a very straightforward slide, straightforward answer. Uh, we already know that they're in bats. They seem they've jumped from bats to humans in this case. Um, they, but they spread in a lot of different um, animals. These animals are birds and mammals. And so why does that make sense that they would be these two um, groups? These are big groups of, of organisms and they're very different from each other, except they're both warm-blooded. Um, and so this, this pathogen is uh, adapted to bodies that have homeostasis and have um, maintained their, their temperatures. Okay, so um, there, are case, there are coronaviruses that we have found in cows and horses and in dogs. Um, and so this is kind of scary because we're talking about coronavirus from bats that emerged into human populations, but we're, we are all the time interacting with these other animals. Um, you know, some of them live in our houses. And so should we be worried about their coronaviruses causing the next pandemic? Um, I think you have to be worried about everything um, all the time, especially given what we're going through right now. Um, but I have to say that the coronaviruses that inhabit these organisms are very, very different than the one that is causing uh, uh, COVID-19 currently. Um, they, these viruses diverged from um, the ones that infect humans uh, a very, very long time ago. And so hopefully the idea there is that they're distinct enough now that it's very difficult for them to make the cross. Um, the virus that uh, is in bats that spread to humans diverged from the human versions of coronavirus, uh, I would say just decades ago. Uh, so they're more, much more similar and, and the idea is that they have much more potential to cross into, into humans. Uh, so bats seem like the main reservoir, although in the past, um, it seems that uh, I think SARS uh, might've had a transition phase where it went into civets. Um, so that's what this is here, pretty exotic, interesting creature. I think it's related to the weasels. Um, and this is a pangolin. Uh, there are ideas that maybe this virus actually came from pangolin. Uh, it seems that it definitely came from bats. Um, although there is some very few uh, locations in the genome of the current uh, COVID-19 uh, two that uh, are similar to ones that were found in pangolin. So there could have been a little bit of genetic recombination, but the majority of the genome is much, much more like the bat, the bat version. So it seems like it came from there. Okay, so a wide range of different hosts have coronaviruses. This is a very old viral group, and so it has lots of time to evolve and diversify into lots of different uh, viruses. Uh, which coronaviruses uh, infect humans. And um, there's sort of three big categories that we've hinted at and talked about, but we'll just be a little bit more explicit now. We have uh, severe acute respiratory syndrome, SARS coronavirus. Um, so now that was, this is talking about SARS-1. Now we have SARS-2. Um, and so this is an outbreak that happened in 2002, 2003. Um, there were just thousands of cases. Hundreds of death though, deaths, though, so this, has, this was 
very pathogenic. It was um, it causes caused a lot of mortality given the spread, how how large the spread was, and um, you know we had a slow response. That's probably why it got as big as it it, it did. Um, and the reservoir seems to be bats in that civet that we talked about a second ago. That one seems to be over in terms of humans. We have SARS-2, which is distinct. Um, there is MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, um, which is actually an ongoing outbreak. You don't hear about it too often. It doesn't seem like it's spreading as much from human to human. Uh, it seems localized in the Middle East. Um, and it seems that it's what's happening is that it spreads in camels and then it jumps from camels to humans. And so that happens also um, with bird flu and pig flu, where most of the time they, they stay, they, there's lots of strains that just stay within, um, within uh, their, their traditional host, um, but sometimes they can jump to humans, but maybe not jump from one human to another human. Once you have that human-to-human transmission, that's when you have the problem. That's what we're experiencing right now with SARS-2. Um, and then we have a bunch of other SARS viruses um, that uh, cause just the, the common cold. And so there's four variants that I know of. There's probably many more variants as well. Um, these are understudied because, well, the common cold is not as, uh, as bad as influenza and some other, other pathogens. Uh, so we don't, or at least I don't know too much about, about those strains. Okay, moving on. So... Is there something unique about SARS-CoV-2 that allowed it to cause this pandemic? Okay, we have another question. So the question is, um, when SARS jumped into, so SARS-2 jumped into uh, humans, um, it's causing you know, a lot of mortality. And the question is, when it's infecting bats, does it have the same negative impact on bats? Do they die at this high of rate? Um, do they, are, they, are they as sick as we are when we get SARS? Uh, and the answer is no, they, they, it does, it's not as deadly to bats. Um, and so there's kind of two components uh, to this question that we will cover in a lot more depth later in the, um, in the lectures. Um, one is how these host shifts happen. And then another one is natural selection on pathogenicity. And actually, it turns out that there is a lot of incentive for viruses to evolve not to kill off their hosts. Um, and uh, basically, if you kill off your host, you're going to sink with a ship and you're not going to spread to other places or other, ho other hosts, other, other individuals. And so you don't want to do that. And so it, 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 the pattern seems to be that brand new viruses that have just emerged into a new population are kind of off kilter and cause a lot of mortality and morbidity. Um, and eventually, they, they, it seems that they, they tend to evolve to be less pathogenic. So when we talk about HIV, uh, the, the substrain of HIV that's spreading the fastest around the globe is actually less virulent than other substrains of HIV that had previously spread around the globe, um, suggesting that this one is favored because it's less, less harmful to, the, to, to people. Um, and so we'll talk about the math behind that and everything and lots of aspects of that later. But it does seem that when, when pathogens co-evolve with, with their host for a while, they end up becoming uh, more and more benign. You know, it's, it's not great to have the common cold, for instance, um, but, you know, we, 
it, it doesn't oft, it often doesn't threaten your life. Okay, um, so let's go back to um, what might be unique about this SARS-CoV-2. So really this question is inspired by the idea that, well, are there genetic mutations in this virus um, that explain why it spread to humans? And if we have that information, then maybe we could um, you know, figure out how to surveil viral populations to find those genetic mutations and make sure that uh, viruses that have them are eliminated from bat populations. Um, or you could imagine if that's a way to identify the weak point of the virus, you could intervene um, by maybe those mutations creating some kind of susceptibility to a compound or a therapy or something. Um, but it's also just, you know, we're scientists and we want to know why things happen um, and why this strain. Uh, and so I don't have a great answer. Uh, there are some interesting hints at what might have happened and what might be some genetic mutations that uh, help facilitate its spread into humans. Uh, and so obviously people have to do these experiments um, to figure this out um, and uh, so that we know what to look for, what, what problems are. Okay, so there was a paper published in, I think, January, uh, Zhao et al., and uh, 20, so in Nature um, this year. And uh, they compared genomic sequences of this virus to many other viruses, and they found that, you know, they, they did have a version of the virus that, um, that they had isolated in bats a while ago um, that shared 96% identity uh, with the SARS-CoV-2 that's now spreading in humans. So that, to some people, that suggested that, well, this seems very similar to other bat viruses, and so maybe it's just not... It doesn't have a, a genetic pre, it's not predisposed genetically to uh, infect humans, but it's just kind of this unlucky thing where a bad virus got into humans and spread. Um, but actually in that 4%, um, and um, there, there's a lot of uh, potential mutations. And we have shown in my lab with a set of viruses and other labs with influenza that a few critical mutations uh, in a genome can actually facilitate uh, host range expansions. Um, and so I, I look at that number and I say, okay, it is very similar to things uh, that are in nature that we found before, um, but that doesn't really tell me about, it doesn't let me rule out the hypothesis that there's a genetic change in this virus that allowed it to spread to humans. What I do want to, what they also pointed out in this paper is that there are there is this interesting pattern in the S gene, um, and uh, in, an, in an important part of the S gene, where and so what I'm showing you here, these are um, amino acid sequences of a region of the of the S protein, um, and uh, they're aligned. So um, there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven different genotypes, so seven different individual viruses that they have the sequences for, and so they're aligned to each other, and we have multiple rows, one, two, three, four, five, six rows. That's just the sequence stretched out, um, and then repeat, then move to the next line down, then move to the next line down, and move to the next line down. Uh, and so we can look at here, and you can see that there's similarities and differences. Uh, if you want to know sort of what exactly all of these strains, the, the IDs relate to, um, look up this paper, um, and but the important part is that these two at the top, these are 
the viruses, this is a virus that spread into humans, and this is a close, close relative that they found uh, in bats. Um, and so they're looking to say, is there anything in these viruses that are distinct from the rest of these viruses? Because um, that, that that, those differences then become our hypothesis for what might have uh, enhanced this group of viruses' ability to spread in humans. Um, and what they find, which I find extremely interesting, are insertions. And so those are highlighted in those blue boxes. Insertions are relatively rare. So insertions are a type of mutation that we'll go over next lecture. Um, and uh, they are where you actually put in new nucleotides. Um, and often they're rare because um, the, um, the polymerases don't tend to make uh, those kinds of mistakes. Um, and they have really deleterious effects often on proteins. So, but when you see them in, um, in sequences, there's something to, to look at because they can radically change the function of the protein, especially if, in their, if they're in the correct spot. Um, and so these are, there's clear differences between these strains and these regions. We know it's important for binding to the, the ACE2. Um, and so our hypothesis is that these might be responsible for why this strain of virus could spread so well in humans. Um, the reason why I also highlight this is that in the virus that I study, and we'll talk about it later more in depth in the, in the course, um, it, uh, when we look at natural variants of the, that virus, it has this kind of pattern of insertions and deletions in its host recognition protein. Um, and we were able to show that those insertions and deletions are related to its ability to change its host range. Um, so I think drawing on my research and these patterns and this, um, I, I would strongly um, propose the hypothesis that these are responsible. Uh, but you know, this is just a hypothesis and not tested yet. The research is ongoing. Okay, so question is from, uh, from the class, uh, what action did humans commit in order to get COVID-19 from bats? From the genomic data, uh, we, we can tell when this happened or roughly when this happened, uh, where it happened, um, but it's very difficult to understand exactly how the virus got from the bat into the human. Um, you know, certainly bat droppings. Um, I know that uh, human feces from patients of COVID-19 have viral particles in them, so that's, that's a possibility. Um, and or maybe just being nearby um, if this was spread by a, an aerosol. So it's really impossible for us to know. But certainly, like I said in the first lecture, we should just limit our contact with organisms, with animals that we know have just diverse sets of vi viruses that could possibly jump into the human population. Let's move forward. Oh, and so this might make you paranoid about the bats maybe in North America um, and trying to avoid them. People are obviously um, uh, naturally afraid of, you know, things like bats flying around at night and things like that. Um, I'm not personally afraid of, you know, bats in the neighborhood or whatever, but, um, you know, I don't know, keep, keep, uh, keep things clean and sterile and, um, and avoid direct contact with wildlife, I should say. Okay, uh, is SARS-CoV-2 evolving? You, you know the answer to this because this is the evolution of infectious disease. And I would not ask that question if 
the course that I'm teaching was not relevant. <laughs> so yeah, I'm sorry. I definitely have a mix up with the slides. Uh, so um, the ordering of the slides. So this is that nextstrain.org data that we've looked at a couple times now. Um, but now I'm showing you um, new data, which is over here, which is, um, it is basically this phylogeny, but right now the y-axis on this phylogeny is arbitrary. It is, it's just sort of creating distance so that you can see the, these, um, these bifurcations in the tree and you can see the evolutionary relationships. Um, but on the right, uh, what we have is, uh, is, you know, you still see connections, these evolutionary connections between all of the points, but now the, the y-axis is, is number of mutations. And so what we can see um, there is that over time, um, the virus is accumulating lots and lots of mutations. And so absolutely, this virus is evolving. The only reason why we can track, you know, how it's been spreading is because as it's spreading, it's accumulating more and more mutations. And you can think of that as a molecular fingerprint that we can read and create these evolutionary relationships and literally go back in time and retrace its steps. We will talk a lot about that later in the, in the lectures about how to build a phylogeny and the logic behind retracing the steps. Um, but uh, what this graph is showing us is that, yeah, they're just continually um, increase, uh, mutating and changing and, and now diversifying. So now we have lots of different strains with different sets of mutations. Um, and what's fascinating is that um, the, the accumulation of mutations is what we call clock-like. It is highly repeatable, and it, there's a certain rate at which these strains are accumulating mutations, and that rate is 23.988 substitutions per year. And so we will talk a lot about molecular clocks and how to establish that rate. Um, it's not the mutation rate. It's influenced by the mutation rate of the virus, but it's not the mutation rate. And, and next time we'll talk about how to quantify mutation rates. And then later we'll talk about um, molecular clocks and how you compute them based on mutation rates. Um, but they're not, they're not always directly mutation rates. Okay. So, um, so certainly this thing is evolving, but often when people are asking the question, is something evolving? What they really mean is, is something adapting? You know, often we think of, um, adaptation by natural selection as being synonymous with evolution, but it's not. There's lots of different evolutionary processes that contribute to the change in the species over time. Um, that's the definition of evolution. And um, uh, evolu natural selection is just one of those many processes. It's the coolest one. It's the one that gives us all of these interesting innovations and adaptations, uh, at least from my perspective, I think it's the coolest process. Um, but uh, it's, not the, it's not the only one. Um, so yeah, so let's just rephrase this question. Um, it, is there evidence that this new virus to humans is actually adapting to humans? As it's spreading around the world, is it accumulating mutations that better able it to use us as hosts? Those mutations may make it worse off for us because it may spread better from one person to the next person, or those mutations may um, allow it not to kill us off um, so that it can uh, exist within our own bodies, its own host, for longer and spread to more people. And so these 
adaptations to us can be bad, but they can also be good for us. You could get a strain in the future that is um, less uh, fatal. So, um, but just the, the question, forget about its impact on us, is it actually just adapting to us? Um, and so obviously data is really preliminary still, um, but there are some interesting patterns. Um, I, I, let's start out with just the, um, the, this is an output from that um, nextstrain.org. Um, and what this is, is this is the genome laid out on the x-axis um, from left to right. Um, this is like, this is now a more formal picture of the genome than that cartoon version that I showed you before. Now things are all to scale. Um, we have ORF1 and ORF2. Somebody asked me to repeat what ORF is. It's open reading frame. So this is used to produce uh, an amino acid, a uh, chain of amino acids, a peptide, that then you know, gets cut up into lots of different proteins. Okay, so this is the genome, and what is now plotted on the y-axis here, and we looked at this in the last lecture too, is diversity. So it's going along the genome. In most sites in the genome, most of the viruses that we've sequenced have the identical uh, nucleotide at those positions. Um, but there are some positions in the genome where we actually see lots of different variants. So maybe you'll have an A or a G or a C. Um, different strains will have those different nucleotides. And so um, this is just highlighting points in the genome that are doing something different. Um, there's lots of genetic variation. And, um, you know, we have a natural inclination to say, well, if there's a lot of evolution happening at a site, well, maybe that site is under natural selection to change. Um, this is called positive selection. We'll go over it soon. Um, and uh, that inclination actually is, there is evidence um, with other studies of other epidemics that, yeah, these sites that have a lot of genetic variation in the, in the virus population um, actually and we call this variation polymorphic. So these polymorphisms indicate that that is probably changing because, because of natural selection. And so one of my colleagues, uh, Tammy Lieberman, is the one that, that proved this. Um, and so we'll talk about her work. Uh, it was actually on bacteria, a bacterial epidemic, not, not a viral epidemic, but I believe that the patterns probably hold for that epidemic and this one as well. And so these sites of enormous variation um, are likely sites in different proteins that um, are under positive selection. Maybe not all of them, but I bet a, a good subset of them are. And so I'm honing in on this S gene. This is the host recognition gene. Um, this is what makes it a corona. Um, and so people have studied this gene and this genetic variation in that gene in much more depth uh, than the rest of the, the genome. Um, and so, and they, there is a preprint, and so a lot of the information on the, the ongoing outbreak has not been peer-reviewed yet, but has been published online so that we can get um, data faster. There's a hazard in this in that if they made the calculations improperly or if they did something wrong, it might not have been caught by a peer reviewer yet. Um, and so um, you should think of, you, this is a caveat that what I'm about to tell you has not been um, proofed um, by other people yet, has not been reviewed, 
and so there could be something something wrong that the that the authors accidentally missed. Um, but uh, the patterns that they show are so strong that I actually do trust them. Um, okay, so let's move forward. So here are a bunch of data that's focusing on that S that S gene. So this you can think of this little panel here is zoomed in on this panel. You'll notice that the pattern of spikes is is different here. Uh, this is because this paper was using older data. This is data from just this morning. Um, and so that's why this pattern looks different. What is this up here? This is um, just, uh, it's a zoomed in diagram of this single gene. So we have multiple subunits and this um, RBD um, is the region that actually interacts directly with the ACE2, the host um, re uh, receptor, the host protein on the, that, that it uses to infect the cell. Um, so that's why it's highlighting these things. And so, you know, we see that there's certain positions in this gene that have uh, genetic diversity. Um, and what they did is they did two computational studies that I find very fascinating. Um, one is that um, they took different segments of the gene corresponds to here, um, and they calculated this thing that you guys will learn how to calculate, a DN-DS ratio. What you need to know at the moment about this ratio is that it's a way of looking at genetic sequences and detecting whether or not natural selection has acted on those genetic sequences to drive, um, uh, to drive the increase of, of variance. So whether or not natural selection is favoring um, certain genetic variants. And um, what the way that DNDS ratio works is that a value above one means positive selection, a value of one means no selection, and a value below one means what you have purifying selection, where there's selection for the virus not to change. The virus is already optimal. So our hypothesis naturally is that um, uh, the virus is not well adapted to humans, and so as it spreads in the human population, it might be accumulating um, adaptive mutations that helps it better spread in those, those human populations. And just looking at S and looking at these different regions of S, you can see that you have actually very high DNDS ratios. This infinity, um, that just means that the, their, the signal was so strong um, for natural selection acting in a positive way to change the amino acid sequence of the protein that um, it broke the, the math behind the DNDS ratio. And so it just means that it's a very, very strong, strong signal, as strong as it possibly could be. Um, but all of these values are above one. And so it suggests that yes, S of, is evolving in a way that's adaptive. And then moving on to here, now this is even more complicated than the DNDS ratio. Um, so let's not worry about the details, but they have, um, uh, computer simulations that can model how this S protein interacts with ACE2 in humans. Um, and what they can show is that actually on this graph here, a lower value means that it interacts better with the human receptor than a, than a higher value. And so these strains that are, or these sequences that are from bats and pangolin uh, coves um, uh, do not interact as well with the, 
the one that is spreading in humans right now. And then there's a bunch of each one of these is a mutation in that was found in uh, strains that are spreading in humans. And as you add in those mutations, um, a lot of them do cause a significantly tighter fit between the S and the ACE2. So that's assumed to be a, a, a stronger, more stable interaction and be able to facilitate infection better. So the take home message, you know, we're not gonna be able to understand all of the details behind these figures, is that there's genetic variation, lots of genetic variation among the viruses that are spreading around the globe. Um, here's when we zoom into a single gene that we know is highly, um, uh, uh, highly affects whether or not this virus can, can infect cells, um, we do an analysis to show that there is absolutely positive selection happening on these sequences um, and that this is just a computational way to say that, well, we think the positive selection is actually resulting in uh, better molecular interactions between that S protein and the ACE2 protein. And so that should help facilitate infection, uh, more efficient infection of human cells. Okay, so this is, this is the last uh, question and I'll make it as quick as possible. Obviously I've had fun uh, describing all this stuff to you guys. I can't believe that this lecture has gone on this long. Um, but the question is, are the red corona, coronaviruses the most virus-y? Uh, and so this question actually comes from one of my friend's uh, kids who sent me a video asking me this question. Um, and so the question is, I think it gets to a, a larger important question about coronavirus. Um, it's based on this, the fact that all of these images um, of coronavirus have these red, uh, red proteins on them. Obviously, uh, not obviously, but viruses don't have color. Uh, these are colored this way just so that we can see these features on the, on the virus so that we can uh, distinguish different proteins from each other. Um, the reason why viruses don't have color is that um, they're actually just so small that wavelength, waves of light don't even interact with them, just pass through them. So, but that leads us to a question, uh, are some coronaviruses more deadly and why are they more deadly? Um, so we have that whole spectrum of viruses that we talked about before. This goes from common cold, common cold, um, to the SARS, uh, outbreaks um, to MERS. Um, and so we've kind of already talked about the spectrum already. Um, and the leading hypothesis for why some of them are more dangerous than other ones is what region of the lungs they tend to infect. And so the ones that cause a lot of problems are in these upper regions, and the ones that cause less of a problem are in these lower regions. That's just a hypothesis, um, but I think it's a pretty good one. Um, so which, which cells they are able to to target and prefer uh, can influence how pathogenic these, these viruses are. You can imagine them evolving to be able to prefer different sets of lung cells um, so that they cause less harm. Hopefully that is what is happening. Thank you, I hope you enjoyed this. Take care, social distance. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.